Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be responding to this Mike Winger guy. Look at this guy. He's very charismatic. He's got the kind of the plaid t-shirt going on, the plaid uh, button up, and uh, nice, nicely done hair. He's got a full head of hair and glasses. A very charismatic guy. It's hard not to like him. It's hard not to. I can see why his church is really popular, why his videos get a lot of hits and views. 8,000 views on a theology video, so that's pretty good. People like this guy because he's charismatic. And being charismatic is not a bad thing, but a lot of times... Your, your charisma overrides your points. People believe you because you deliver your points with charisma rather than the merits of the points themselves. So let's hear what Mike Winger has to say about open theism. We're going to talk about foreknowledge tonight, God's foreknowledge. The question we're going to ask is, what does God actually know? What does God know? And you might think, well, that's easy. He knows everything. But I think there's more to it than that. And I think it's exciting to get to the more to it parts. Um, and then we're going to answer some questions that skeptics sometimes ask, like, if God knows what I'm going to do, then how is it possible that I actually have free will? I like his mannerisms. He's a soft talker. He, he's talking to people like he's in just like a normal conversation. So I can see why this appeals to people. People like listening to this. It's like a friendly conversation. If God knows you're about to drink the coffee you're holding, do you really have a choice to not drink it? That's a good question. We're going to answer that. Um, we're going to deal with something called open theism, which is something you've probably likely never heard of. A lot of people haven't heard of, but it's the idea that God doesn't actually know the future, but God only guesses at the future. <laughs> so uh, where did you get that definition from? Is that like an open theist book you opened up and it says, open theism is the view that God guesses at the future. I don't think so. I think you're poisoning the well here. And so even me knowing the future, I know I'm going to go to work on Monday. And this is not because, uh, oh, uh, I'm just guessing at the future. I'm guessing I'll go to work tomorrow. Blinken, what are you doing up there? Guessing? I guess no one's coming. Uh, this is me knowing because it's improbable that that's not going to happen. I know where I'm going to be. I know what I'm going to be doing. I know I have the power to bring it about. It's not a guess at the future. It's a knowledge of the future that's concrete. There might be sub-guesses about the future, but uh, I don't spend my time guessing about the future. I don't know. Uh, like, even in the betting markets, they're not guesses. It's like, like uh, I put my money on Trump still being president in uh, January of 2019. It's not a guess. It's not a guess. And uh, I'll make money off of that uh, little bet thing. Now, 10%, that's a pretty good uh, markup. But anyways, so I like his definition. It's it's a little bit of poisoning the well. It, just a little bit of poison. Not 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 the not a ton of poison. He didn't shake the bottle in there. He just added a little bit of poisoning the well. You know, he's like he's like kind of working all things together for good, but he's sort of like juggling everything that's going on to try to bring out some good reaction. Now, this is actually a growing more and more popular view in the world out there, this open theism view. Um, we're going to deal with that. And we're, we can only hope we're uh, going to continue our going through Romans verse by verse as, as we keep moving forward. But because we hit the, the topic of foreknowledge, predestination, and I, I thought, let's just pause and let's unpack these ideas. And then we'll keep going through Romans eight into Romans nine as we get to the end of those. So, um, uh, first thing I want to do is just, we'll read the passage we're in. So we're here in Romans chapter eight and starting in verse 28. It says, And we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image. So didn't he just kind of criticize open theism for God just uh, being like a master manipulator? I got this book in front of me. It's called uh, Double Take. And in it, it has a passage that was quoted by Gregory Boyd on this Romans 8 verse about the synergy, this working together. And the working together is God working with creation to work all things together. And uh, isn't that what he just criticized with uh, open theism, that God juggles things together? And uh, I'm just going to read a r real quick passage from this. The Greek word synergio from which the English word synergy comes does not mean work out or fall into place. In the New Testament, it always signifies 
the active involvement of real actors accomplishing some task. To treat Panta as a subject implies that everything that happens is actively and consciously working at the project of making good things happen to people who love God. That kind of claim would be linguistically odd, to say the least. Theologically, the scriptures never attribute goodwill and active working to all things. If good things are being made to happen, it is because God is at work transforming all things into something they would not become on their own. So, uh, this this verse is about God's active involvement uh, with believers in context of this verse. And it's, it's important to know that that's an open theistic concept uh, that he seems to have criticized a little bit. ...of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And so that, that's what's bringing us the topic of God's foreknowledge. It's, it's really a theological topic. And there's an issue here between Calvinism and Arminianism, or I should say maybe Calvinism and everybody else. And so, so the non-Calvinists, um, I wouldn't consider myself an Arminianist, but I wouldn't consider myself a Calvinist. Although a lot of the people who watch on YouTube probably think I am a Calvinist because we have a lot in common with Calvinists actually and our, our view of God's glory and sovereignty. So I really like Matt Chandler. Remember the Matt Chandler podcast, his handling of the foreknowledge because he understands that this foreknowledge is about uh, uh, intimate knowledge, like a relational knowledge, rather than like a head knowledge, like, oh, I know something before it happens. That's not what the word's about. And uh, which is really funny because who does God foreknow? Um, the elect, right? The chosen, the chosen people. And uh, Calvinists and um, even some Arminians will want it about like God just knowing the names of certain individuals before things happen. But doesn't God foreknow everything then? Doesn't God foreknow? Uh, both the elect and the non-elect. It's talking about people who he foreknows. So what's going on there? How does that work out in your theology? It, it's funny. It's funny. Our firm, you know, unembarrassed willingness to stand on the scriptures and just proclaim what it says, that is in common with Calvinists. I like a lot about Calvinists, but I don't always agree with everything that's said. Yeah, for the, the uh, word for foreknowledge, that, that is a relational word. So God has intimate knowledge of these people. God has intimate knowledge of the remnant. God has intimate knowledge of the people who are seeking to serve him. And those are the ones who he predestined to be conformed into his image. That's what's going on there. When does the foreknowledge, the foreknowledge, the intimate knowledge take place? When Paul uses the word, he's talking about people who knew Paul in Paul's youth. So the foreknowledge isn't like a timeless, eternal foreknowledge or anything like that. It's this Knowledge that you get from experience in relation with people. Said there, so we're going to get into that, but before we do, let me just say this. Here's my little caveat, my little disclaimer. The debate between Calvinism and Arminianism is a discussion between believers, not non-believers. And sometimes people will attack with these sort of, I don't know, I'll be honest, irritating ideas <laughs> that come out. Like, well, if Calvinism is true, then God is evil. Because he's making all these things happen. And then, and I'm thinking, so what if Calvinism is true and then you stand before God? You're going to be like, God, you're evil. You're going to try that? Does that sound smart to you? If you're wrong, you're blaspheming God when you say. What, what kind of argument is this? Is this like a utility argument? So um, if God is evil, let's pretend, let's just hypothetically pretend we live in a world where God is like truly evil and he's just like really bad and evil and the most evil thing in your mind think about it and then just attribute it to god and then let's pretend that's reality and you stand in front of him on judgment day are you supposed to say oh you're not evil because it serves a utilitarian function to make you not become a, a counter to him uh, in, in opposition to him as is that your argument mike Weger? that doesn't seem like a very good argument say that. That seems like a pretty weird thing to say. But then on the flip side, you'll have a Calvinist. And I actually talked to Calvinist a couple days ago, good friendly conversation. But he said, if if uh, if, if Calvinism is not true, if, if non-Calvinists are right, then what you have is a weak God, a weak God, because he wants people to be saved, but he just can't make it happen. And, they, and, and I just said, you're going to stand before God and tell him he's weak? <laughs> like, is that what you're going to do? And what this is, is that this is um, what I like to call uh, trotting out the ark. 
It's an argument from adverse consequences. It's a logical fallacy. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament when the, um, when the children of Israel were fighting their enemies, the Philistines, and they thought, man, we're not winning against our enemies. Tell you what, let's get the ark out of the temple or out of the tabernacle. Let's bring it out onto the battlefield and let's go to war with the ark. In other words, we're going to make it so it's like, God, you have to give us victory because if we lose, we lose the ark. Well, they lost. And what some people do is they trot out the gospel. And they feel their, their theological position so important on this, whatever topic it is, say it's foreknowledge, Calvinism, whatever, that they're going to say that anyone who disagrees with them on the particulars of their theology is actually disagreeing on the gospel itself. But that's why I start off by saying we're brothers. Yeah, people are so funny. I'll, I, often I see the trend that the things that people just really, really, really care about, those are the things that uh, also just so happen to be the issues critical for salvation. Like like I was talking to uh, these moral government people this once, and uh, I was like, okay, so, so take someone who believes in uh, salvation by faith alone and uh, believes that you can't lose your salvation, and this, uh, they believe that. And then they're also like a really good person and they, they live a life just like you. And then they say, they said, no, that guy's not saved. That guy's uh, like hellbound. He's like, because he, he believes in a different uh, method of salvation, even though all his actions and his belief in Jesus's death and resurrection are the same. It's so funny. It's like, not only do you have to believe in the right things, but you have to believe that believing in the right things is the method of of salvation also doing the right thing and then they they go they break down in this thing like no one could believe in once saved always saved and then also be a good person it's like ah okay okay let that, sure sure whatever 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 makes you happy brothers and sisters having a conversation here it's not a question of uh gospel issues now when it comes to me and a jehovah's witness that's a gospel issue the ark is involved here so to speak me and Mormonism, that's a gospel issue. Even, if, even me and Catholicism, that's a gospel issue. If you don't think so, you have never read Catholic theology. <laughs> um, that's a Well, yeah, not here, here, here's a, I'm going to break this to you. Not all Catholics, not very many Catholics read or understand their own theology. Uh, so a lot of Catholics actually turn out to be real good Christians. Uh, I don't think like the, the bishops or whatever, people high and it's just like Calvinism. A lot of Calvinists are good Christians, but I don't think the people that are high in the totem poles are Christians because uh, they, they, they know what their theology actually says and they believe what their theology actually says. So uh, yeah, the same argument can be made uh, for Catholics and Calvinists or whatever, but uh, the layman, I don't think the layman are not Christians. They just don't understand their own theology. It's a gospel issue. But Calvinism, Arminianism, that is not a gospel issue. Uh, thank you, Lord. So let's just keep that in mind. Um, and what we want to do is we want to be able to look at the text and rather than starting with maybe a construct of theology, just say, what can I affirm about God's foreknowledge? What can I affirm about, say, predestination? We'll get there next week. And, and then just believe those things. That, that's the simplicity that I'm going to come from. I want to know what can I affirm here, and then we will do Q&A at the end. So you might want to write those questions down because you might forget them as we're going. So first off, what does God know? What does God know? Well, we have a, a Christian theological position, which is fairly unanimous in Christianity, which is the idea that God is omniscient. He has all knowledge, omni meaning all, and science meaning knowledge. He's omniscient. He has omniscience. All knowledge. Uh, you could say God knows everything, everything, and that, that would be fair. But we're going to consider some different aspects of God's knowledge different sides of the equation of, of what God knows based on scripture. So we're going to establish omniscience doing something we like to call systematic theology. Systematic theology, or what you might just think of as a topical Bible study. So there, there's problems with uh, topical Bible studies. A lot of times people just uh, quote verses. They assume meaning into those verses. They don't look at context. And so the, just watch for it. Watch for it. If someone's trying to just prove something by just a list of verses, do they dive into any of those verses to discuss the context. Who's talking? What are they talking about? What What is the, the point in context? The, the words have meaning. They're, they're trying to convince someone of something, trying to get some idea to someone. What's going on in context? And, and why is that a good verse to, to establish whatever absolute? Remember, uh, there's in, in language, people often use generalizations or hyperbo hyperbolic talk. 
hyperbolic speech. They, they talk in very concrete terms when there are rules of thumb exceptions. Paul talking in Romans says that all have sinned. Does he include Jesus or is this hyperbolic? Is he just using a hyperbolic generalization? And the, the passage he's quoting, he's quoting King David talking about all have sinned. And in that passage, there's righteous people. He says there's no none righteous, no, not one. But then he talks about the righteous generation. And of course, he's counting himself as the righteous. So in that context, it's hyperbolic. It's a generalization. So is he going to go into the context and prove from the context that uh, his, his ideas of omniscience are proved from these proof texts? Or is he just going to quote them and just pretend they mean what he wants them to mean? Is he just going to assume his position onto the text? <laughs> that's, that's the fancy term for topical Bible study. We pick, pick a topic and we survey different passages of Scripture and then pull together all these truths to get a full understanding. So, God knows everything first. I'm going to give you, I think it's about five things that God knows. The first one is God knows everything that happens in the universe. He knows everything that's actually happening right now. And uh, I'll give you several verses for this. Uh, Job 28, 24. Job 28, 24, it says, For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens. <laughs> so this is uh, actually talking about the ancient idea that God is in heaven and he peers down, uses uh, visual confirmation to see everything on earth, and acquires active omniscience. Uh, he's, he's acquiring information that he looks to see. And this is not the idea of omniscience that classical theology believes in. They believe in this inherent knowledge that's ungenerated and it doesn't come from outside and God doesn't look to know. But Job is describing this and this is Job in context. And does everything Job say, says, is, is it even trustworthy? A lot of it is. Uh, Job is commended for speaking right about God. But you also have to use critical thinking to figure out what's correct and what's not correct because uh, God also says that Job is speaking without wisdom or without coming from a place of, of knowledge. And so you got to be very careful when quoting Job. Whenever you're quoting Job, uh, who is talking? And better not be, you better not be quoting Job's friends because that's definitely not acceptable as uh, true theology. God's aware of all that is going on everywhere in the earth, underneath the whole heavens. He sees it all. Job 31.4, it says, Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? All my steps. The impl implication is not just vaguely aware, but he's more intimately aware of Right, and that again is God is looking to see. This is Job's idea of how God knows. God acquires information from sight. This is not what you want. This is not, Mike Winger, your idea of omniscience. And uh, it, it's just going over your head that uh, the Bible always describes how God knows what he knows. And uh, you, you, if you skip over that, you're missing quite a lot. You're assuming some other different standard of omniscience under the Bible that the Bible doesn't present. The details of what's going on in my life. Job 34, verses 21 and 22. Job 34, verses 21 and 22. It says, for his eyes are on the ways of man. And he did it. He did it. He quoted Job's friends. He quoted Job's friends. Job's friends are condemned by God, and then God wants to kill him. Okay? So that's really funny. And uh, Job's friends are wrong about God. Not, not, that doesn't mean everything that Job's friends say are wrong. But when people are quoting Job's friends for theology, uh, that's that's funny to me. It's like quoting people who God condemns as being wrong and uh, saying, this, this guy's theology is mine. And he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. This is God looking to see. And people might try to hide from God, but God knows where they're at. And you find uh, similar concepts like this throughout the Bible where in Ezekiel, there's people who try to hide from God because their idea is that God is looking from heaven and it's a visual omniscience. And so sometimes like in Job, it talks about how the clouds might block his vision. And uh, but he could see through the clouds is the correct theology that God, God's vision is not going to be blocked by the clouds. In Ezekiel, God's vision is not going to be blocked by uh, being under the earth or in a basement in a dark room. God can know what's happening in these dark places without uh, direct line of sight. And direct line of sight is, is a common ancient conception of how omniscience works, knowing all things. So that's what it's countering here. And uh, yeah, we, we can accept that theology, but again, that's not your omniscience. That's not what you want in how God knows what he knows. But remember, 
Uh, Ellie, who's talking here. Ellie, who's one of the friends. The friends are condemned. Uh, take it with a grain of salt. Take it. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's just there's no way of escaping God's awareness. Now this 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 type of knowledge could be somehow connected. This is just a could be. I'm not making my theology on this. Could be somehow connected to God's omnipresence. I mean, because if he's omnipresent, he's certainly aware of everything that's going on everywhere. Um, pro- that's very astute. And so uh, classical conceptions of God's omnipresence and uh, people get, get mad at me for saying omnipotence, omnipresence, omnipotence, uh, so similar word constructs. So I, I, I'll still use omnipotence. It works. But uh, similarly, um, this omnipresence in classical theology is that God is outside of space and time, not that God is in every square inch of everywhere. And that's that's something that's important to note because uh, in in a classical tradition you, you need to make God other you need to take him out of the world he can't have all presence in the sense that he inhabits every square inch of everywhere but a lot of times in ancient religions like Zeus was a god of the air and Zeus had uh, omnipresence in in the sense that uh, since he was affiliated with the air and the air was everywhere that's how he acquires all that information. And so it's, it's kind of a, astute of him to say that omnipresence might be associated with omniscience. Although, uh, th- this, that's not the case that's being made here in these verses that he's quoting. It's about a direct line of sight. Proverbs 15.3, here's another verse for you. says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So if you like that he's keeping watch on you. Yeah, so eyes of the Lord is an interesting phrase that uh, appears throughout the Bible. Let's type it in, eyes of the Lord. And uh, sometimes it's uh, used for maybe God's visual perception of things, uh, but sometimes it's used for angels. All right, so let's look at Zechariah and see what it says about the eyes of the Lord here. I'm not saying this is every single use of eyes of the Lord is this, but this is what it says. For whoever has despised the day of the small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And so you got seven eyes and they range throughout the whole earth. And what they are is they're angels and they're angels of judgment. And you see these angels reoccur in Revelation, in which uh, the seven angels uh, of the Lord are the seven stars, the seven eyes. Uh, they act as God's uh, uh, messengers to earth or God's enforcers. So the eyes of the Lord in the Proverbs are on, on the wicked. Is it God's angels that are watching God's, God's enforcers, God's uh, judgment? Is it like the eyes of the king are on this place? Like, like a king might have a network of spies throughout anywhere. And uh, like in Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia, they say the eyes of the witch are throughout these woods. They, she's got eyes and ears everywhere. And what that is, is it's a statement about general surveillance, about using a network of spies. So what is going on in this verse? Have you, have you considered these alternative possibilities? And, and note the visual nature of this verse. God has eyes and the eyes are watching. God is acquiring information from outside himself. This is, again, not the omniscience that you care about, that you want to attribute to God. And uh, so he's doing this uh, Moat and Bailey thing, uh, or maybe he just doesn't understand uh, classical understandings of omniscience, how omniscience works and functions. And so he's using he's using a very superficial treatment of it, and he's not proving the classical notions that he wants to engage in. God's omniscience is a visual omniscience that he acquires from outside himself by watching the world, and all his his proof texts so far have spoken to that. Again, this is not his theology. That's good. That's a good sign in your life. If you're like, oh man, he sees me everywhere, then that means maybe you should get your heart right with the Lord. <laughs> Uh, Matthew 10, 29 and 30, Matthew 10, 29 and 30, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Do you recognize the words of Jesus here? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God's intimate, detailed knowledge of you, the number of hairs on your head. So I would say it's... Yeah, again, that's a present counting of current events. It's fair to say, there's other verses we could go to, but it's fair. And again, uh, nothing he's shown... Uh, shows that these are like mechanical and these these function mechanically like metaphysical absolutes rather than volitional omniscience or omniscience that is 
being described in hyperbolic terms to uh, communicate a point. Just like Paul says, all has sinned, not all has sinned. Jesus didn't sin, right? That, that's, uh, that's the normal Christian position. Fair to say, God knows, number one, everything that happens in the universe. If a star goes supernova, God's aware of it before us, partially because of it takes time for light to travel across the universe to get to us. But he's aware of it as it happens. He knows all that is happening. Okay, so number two, second thing God knows. God knows our secret thoughts. Our secret thoughts, or you could just say our thoughts, <laughs> because they're all kind of secret, right? First yeah. uh, Chronicles 28.9, First Chronicles 28.9, it says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. He knows my heart and what's going on in, in my thought process, and he's even searching my motives, the intent, what I why I was thinking that or what my desire was there. So yeah, let's, let's look at how language is used in the Bible. And uh, let's, <laughs> let's read about the Prince of Tyre, or Prince of Tyre. You know, that's the more scholarly pronunciation of Tyre. The Son of Man, say to the Prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God, I sit in the seat of the gods. In the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself, gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. So look at that language. No secret is hidden from you. So the prince of Tyre, he knows all the secrets of the heart too, right? Or, or is this being a hyperbolic? So what kind of language is used? And does your proof text actually mean what you claim it means? That's why going into context is very important. Who is being spoken to? In what context? What, what, what are they supposed to draw out of this? Is this supposed to be a metaphysical absolute? Or is it a gross generalization? Not like a yucky generalization, just like a broad generalization. Gross generalization of uh, language. And does God always know everyone's heart at all instances? Um, is What is testing? What's the function of testing that we see in Genesis with Isaac and, and uh, Abraham? And he lifts the knife and God is doing a, a legitimate test to see what uh, Abraham will do in certain circumstances. God tests the heart. So maybe... Maybe that's the mechanical way that God knows hearts. God tests hearts to see what the hearts will do. And uh, is, he, is he showing that this omniscience, this knowledge, is eternally ungenerated knowledge that's inherent in God from all eternity? Or is this another piece of knowledge that God knows through means? God knows it organically through, through the means available to acquire this knowledge. It's critical. It's critical. So when you're dealing with people who uh, maybe they're surface level thinkers about these issues, they don't understand what's actually believed about their position. Um, they'll they'll use proof texting in this very haphazard manner where they just throw verses. They they don't read the verses at face value and then they pretend those verses mean their theology. I don't think this guy believes that God acquires through sight that God acquires knowledge through testing. I don't think he, he believes that, but he's using proof texts that say explicitly that. So uh, Psalm uh, 44 verse 21b, for he knows the secrets of the heart. God knows the secrets of your heart. How though? How? How? What's what's the mechanism? And in context, uh, who's speaking to who? What are they trying to say? And uh, what what's the information that we're supposed to get out of it? This is, this is a great scripture for you to put up on your wall, Jeremiah 17, 9. It's about your heart. We like singing about our hearts, thinking about our hearts, writing love songs about your heart and saying things like, God knows my heart. It's Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10 is for you, if that's you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So you don't know your heart. That's the point. Your own heart tricks <laughs> That's the point. You don't you don't know your your heart. You don't know your heart. Okay. You know, you ever felt led of the Lord to do something that wasn't of the Lord? Well, you were being led of your heart and your heart was deceiving you, trying to find a motive, trying to find a 
So in Psalms 139, which I'm sure he's going to quote at some point where King David is talking to God, he says, there's nothing evil in my heart and uh, just test my heart and you'll see God. Just And he, he says in a different Psalm, King David says, my heart has been on you since the womb. Uh, you know, I've lived my life for you. I've served you in righteousness. And so a lot of these hyperbolic claims, you need to show he wants to take hyperbolic claims as generalizations and sure or he wants to take hyperbolic claims as metaphysical absolutes okay sure that might be a valid reading is metaphysical absolute but that's not the only reading and it's it's probably in my eyes not the most natural reading of those verses rather rather those verses seem like uh, hyperbolic statements to make points to the immediate audience to drive home talking points right that's, that's what's going on there. Rather than speaking metaphysics, he thinks he's, when he's reading the Bible, he thinks that when he's reading the Psalms, he's reading an instruction manual for like uh, rebuilding a car where it says, insert this piece to this piece. And then he takes them all as metaphysical absolute. But then then what he does is he, he doesn't even read the verses. He doesn't read the verses. Uh, like the verses we already talked about where God acquires information through seeing. He's just like, oh, he just he just glosses over that. He just pretends that verse means his specific understanding of omniscience, which is eternal, ungenerated knowledge. So it's funny. It's funny. A good excuse to do the thing you felt like doing. Now, I don't think this guy is being purposeful in any of these misrepresentations of the verses and this this. Uh, very bad experiment in not being able to read contextually the meaning of verses. I don't think he's being purposeful. I think he's he's generally has not given this any in-depth thought. He, he genuinely generally is just ignorant of the issues at stake, and he's 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 just so inoculated, or uh, he's he's in such a bubble world that he's never been presented with uh, different views of these verses. And uh, so if he's never been exposed to alternative views, his, his mindset is probably not there to pick them up. Um, this, of course, is, is the cause of adultery <laughs> and people saying, oh, well, the Lord's leading me to get divorced. And that, that sort of content a lot of times is coming from this. So the heart's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Uh, this is consequently quoted wrong a lot of times within Calvary chapels. I don't know how that started, but it did. We, we, we like to say the heart is deceitfully wicked. Think about that for a second. If it's deceitfully wicked, that means it's pretending to be wicked, but it's actually good. <laughs> it's like, I was being wicked, tricked you, I was good. Like, that's not, it's deceitful above all. Uh, language allows the alternative understanding of that phrase too, my friend. Things and desperately wicked. Um, of course, it's the most deceitful because it deceives you from the inside out. I mean, I just, I deceive myself with my own heart. I need the Lord. But then it talks about God's knowledge of your heart. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how God acquires the knowledge. That's how God acquires. It's 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 not gonna. He's he's not gonna pick up on this. He's not. He's just gonna keep rolling forward with his ideas of omniscience. Ways according to the fruit of his doings. So not only does God have knowledge of your heart, he has more knowledge than you do of your own heart. God knows my heart is actually not saying I know I'm good and God does too. It's more like saying God knows my heart. How how does God know your heart? And I hope I'm doing all right, you know, because I don't, because my heart's deceitfully wicked. Not. It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Um, Hebrews 4.13. Maybe this, this sort of knowledge of God knowing our hearts, this will make more sense now. Hebrews 4.13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Oh, God. What, what a verse about God seeing to know. Oh, a visual omniscience that he acquires through sight. Oh, say it's not so. It's another verse. It's another verse. God acquires knowledge through sight. Every single, every single one of his verses. This is actually the ancient conception of how God operates, that God gets omniscience through visual sights. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's alternate passages like in Isaiah about God knowing the future. But that knowledge is not like... The, the sight knowledge, that's God knowing things that he will do in the future. And uh, God testing a heart is like a predictable knowledge that God tests your heart to know your heart. And, and then he can predict what your heart will do based on his testing of your heart. But the knowledge, the general like uh, information knowledge, like God knows uh, my car is gray or something like that. That's that's like a visual omniscience in in the eyes of the ancient writers. Even in the author of Hebrews, which Hebrews is perhaps the most uh, philosophical 
philosophically orientated text. It's uh, written at a very late date, and uh, you might find elements of Platonizing in the Hebrews. And this and this is their idea of omniscience. This is this is their idea of how God acquires the knowledge. It's a visual omniscience from uh, looking and seeing. Oh, so it's so funny, like like the whole Bible. It's 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 pretty. It's pretty uh, consolidated. It's pretty, uh, it's it's unified in their idea of how God acquires this knowledge and what kind of omniscience God has. It's not the platonic, ungenerated knowledge from time eternal. So that's funny. It's funny. I love his proof text. And they just, they refute his ideas of how God knows what he knows. Naked and open, nothing being hidden. You know, a lot of people's, the clothes that they wear is, is largely about hiding. This is a good thing, by the way. You should, there are clothes that are about not hiding. I, I think that that's just, you know, should be. Yeah, I, that probably deserves more than one person laughing in the audience. Uh, maybe, maybe a slight chuckle of two or three more people. In the bedroom of a married couple, and that's about it. But we are completely unhidden. There's nothing about me that's hidden. So God knows my secret thoughts. He can read my mind. He can read my mind. Um, this you might be asking, like, can how 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 does God read your mind? Because He tests to know. He puts you through trials. King David says, "Test my heart to know my heart. Put me through trials. See what I will do, and I will come out all the better for it." And that way, you will know me. It's so funny. Uh, this is this. They they don't put critical thought into their proof texts. Satan read my mind too. Well, there's no scripture that I can think of that suggests that Satan can read the minds of men, although we do have scripture that says that Satan put it into the heart of Jesus. So look at his his subtle transition. He, he goes to a verse about God testing a heart to know it, and then he jumps automatically to mind reading. Mind reading. I, I don't think he consciously understands what he's doing here, where he's uh, going to an undefensible position, uh, just assuming it's true, because he found a slight proof text that, that might, might... Uh, enforce his views he really wants his views to be true and these are his proof texts and in his mind these proof texts actually mean what he's claiming judas to betray jesus so the idea is that he could sort of uh try to interject uh, an idea or desire into someone's heart but there's nothing specifically saying he can read the mind of a person but i do think this that satan after all these years has probably become a pretty good study of human character I mean, like me as a youth pastor, I've become fairly good at reading teenagers after all these years. And just reading people in general, we all tend to get better and better at that as we go on in life. And so he's building a false contrast, uh, but but he hasn't established that God is a mind reader. None of his verses show that. And God knowing the hearts, how? The only mechanical way that he's presented so far about God knowing hearts and minds is through testing. And so... In the same way that he knows the hearts and minds of these teenagers, that's the, that's the only proof text he's presented for how God knows the hearts and minds of these teenagers. You can kind of read people. Well, I imagine he's fairly good at it. And so, um, so but, but who knows? But we know for sure God definitely can read minds completely and entirely. <laughs> oh, look, look at it. Look at it. So God can completely and utterly read minds. And his proof texts are a couple of things about knowing the heart and mind. And then uh, one that it describes how God knows it. Oh, it, it's, it's not clicking. It, he, he doesn't get it. Um, and motives. So number three. So first was that God knows what? Everything that happens in the universe. Two is that God knows our secret thoughts and motives. Three. <laughs> oh, oh, like a spattering of proof texts from Job and Job's friends and uh, uh, Proverbs. Oh, oh, it's funny. Is that God knows the future. God knows the future. And Proverbs are like general rules of thumb to begin with, and they can be contradictory, and uh, they function like things your mom might tell you. And there's a whole scene in, in Hamlet, which is really funny because the father is giving this fatherly advice to uh, Hamlet's buddy about how he should conduct himself. And it's like all like old wife's nonsense things. And, and the whole point of it is to just show that the, the father is a really ridiculous person. And that's what I think about when I think about Proverbs. You know, they're, they're, they might be good advices. And uh, yeah, a string of them might be good advice, uh, maybe. But generally, they're general rules of thumb. Uh, they don't always work out. And, uh, you know, a proverb about you always being watched, so behave yourself, 
That sounds like a hyperbolic or a generalization to begin with. And then you got the additional problems of what is the eyes of the Lord? What are they? Is it God using eyes to visually see the, the world? Or are you going to discount, Matt Chandler would discount that. He's, oh no, God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't receive his knowledge through visual, visual stimuli. And then uh, is it God's angels? Is God's enforcers running around the world watching people like we see in Job, as we see in Revelation, as we see in uh, Zechariah? Is that what's going on there? He would, he, he, he's probably never been introduced to that concept. But uh, So it's funny. His, all his proof texts for his, his overarching grand things, they don't prove what he's trying to set out to prove. It's like you need better proof text. You need to do contextual analysis. This is the problem with this systematic theology, this this uh, topical study, is that people start with their conclusion. They, they don't do it scientifically. They don't uh, say, oh, let's look at what the evidence actually says and they'll bring me to whatever conclusion. They start with their conclusion and they just look for any verse that has anything similar to say and they just pretend that that uh, reaches their ultimate conclusion. It doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God's knowledge of the future. That was. <laughs> uh, well, uh, he hasn't dove, dug in very deeply into that verse. So even John Calvin takes that verse and he says, This is not about. God knowing everyone's days of their lives, knowing in perpetuity how long we'll live or anything like that. It's actually about fetology and uh, the development of a baby in the womb. And that's what God knows, the days, the parts, uh, when yet they were none, how the baby's going to develop in the womb. And so this is John Calvin's take on it. And John Calvin, uh, I think John Calvin's actually a pretty decent scholar, a Greek scholar, a Hebrew scholar. He knows what he's talking about for the most part. You just have to read him with a grain of salt because he really wants his theology to be true. And so he forces it in some places. But when, when an advocate of total predestination, God knowing everything, when they're saying that uh, this proof text that Matt Chandler is using is not a proof text for the view, uh, we might we might want to listen because those are the people with the most stake in the game to really, really want the proof text. And when they're saying it's not a proof text, uh, maybe they're right. Psalm 139, verse 16. Also, Isaiah 41. Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 through 24. Isaiah 41, 21 through 24. It says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Now, here in Isaiah, God is challenging the false gods and the prophets of the false. So here's some context. So this is good. False gods. Oh, if you're true gods, if you really are who you say you are, then come and tell us the future. It seems that this knowledge of the future is exclusive to God. Uh, okay, so okay, so that, that was a little bit of a misrepresentation. So Isaiah 41, I believe he said. But in Isaiah, so here's what's going on. Uh, Israel is in exile. Uh, Isaiah 40 through about roughly 48 is a second Isaiah. It's written to Israel in exile. And uh, there's there's this this thing where God, Yahweh God, is competing with the false gods for adherence. Uh, the, Israel has uh, generally rejected him and uh, Yahweh's defeated and uh, they might as well go worship the gods of the Babylonians. And so the prophets of Yahweh come out and they say, no, this is this is not true. In fact, God predicted this exile. God said, this is going to be punishment for you to go into exile. And then it happened. And so we know God, Yahweh, is telling the truth that this is, this is God's power act because God said it and then God did it. And so that proves that he is the true God. He's a powerful God. It's a claim about power. And so the false gods, you know, they might take credit for things after it happens. Oh, a volcano erupts. Oh, that was my God who did it. Well, did if your God is only taking credit for things after they happen, that's not very um, convincing that that was that God actually doing it. So the whole context of Isaiah is all about uh, if someone has power to bring something about. It's not about knowledge. This is not like a survey, like let's figure out which God could predict the random rice, the dice roll. It was like a 20-sided dice. Let's, let's see how which God could predict the, the dice roll, 100 rolls. You know, it's not about that. It's not a trivia. 
hit the button, Jeopardy, um, figure out uh, the right answer to what will happen in the future. This is about power. God says what he will do, and then he brings it about. And the false gods, they don't have any examples of that. So which shows it's not about knowledge. It's not like, oh, Israel, you should worship God because he's a very knowledgeable guy. He knows all about the future, has a lot of information in that head. It's, it's all about power. Israel, you should worship God because God says he will do something and then he does it. He follows through. He has power. He has ability. And he is the true God. These other gods, it's not like, oh, these other gods, they just don't have the information in their head. It's not what's going on there. These other gods, they're powerless. They cannot act. They cannot uh, say they're going to do something and then follow through and do it. You worship Yahweh because Yahweh is the true God. He is the powerful God. He is the one who says what he will do and then follows through. And in the context of Isaiah, he declares something new. And so when is God declaring these things? In the beginning, per Isaiah, there's God declares the beginning from the end in Isaiah. And the beginning is when he says he's going to do it. And he declares it to people so that they can write it down, record it, and spread it around that God's going to do this thing. And the end is after that thing happens. It's not about God declaring into a timeless eternity, oh, I'm going to do something at some date. No, it's about God declaring to his people what he's going to do and then following through. These are power claims. God is claiming, I am powerful. It's not a trivia knowledge contest. And and uh, this, uh, not Matt Chandler, who is this guy? This is Mike Winger. Mike Winger. I should know that name. This Mike Winger, he's, he's claiming that this is like a trivia contest, not what's going on in context. It's exclusive to God. First Peter talks about how the, the things that were revealed to us are things that angels desired to look into. Like they were even waiting for the revelation of this gospel message. And how is that relevant about uh, complete omniscience? That only God knew all that was going to happen and reveals pieces of it to us. So again, uh, yeah, so God can have plans and God could carry through with those plans. And those plans can be flexible. Like uh, God says, I'm going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. And then he decides not to based on the actions of Nineveh. God declares that he's going to have an everlasting eternal promise to Eli's house. And uh, then he says, oh, no, because you guys are wicked, I'm going to revoke that eternal promise and replace it with a conditional promise. God promises to Abraham that he's going to have a complete lineage forever. He might destroy all of uh, Abraham's lineage and go through Moses, or he might destroy all of Abraham's lineage and rise new children of Abraham from the rocks. These are options that are valuable to God because God is powerful and these are power claims and God accomplishes his uh, predictions, his, his predictions, his prophecies through power rather than through knowledge. And this is a disconnect in this guy's mind. He, he, wants, he really wants his omniscience to be true and he really wants these to be proof texts. So he hasn't, he hasn't critically examined those proof texts to see if those proof texts really mean what he really wants those proof texts to mean. Starting in verse 22 here, Isaiah 41. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Tell us what's going to happen next, is the idea. Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or evil. See, it's about doing. It's about doing. It's about accomplishing. That we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. And your work is nothing. And your work is nothing. This is about power. This, this is not a knowledge claim. This is not a trivia contest. It's about ability to perform. He who chooses you is an abomination. The idea that false gods are exactly that. They're false. And one of the specific differences between false gods and true gods is this idea of prophecy. And there's only one true God, and there's only one source of prophecy, and that is God Almighty. That's why when we did our, uh, our series on evidence for the Bible, I spent 10 weeks on prophecy. Because prophecy is something unique to Christianity, unique to the Bible. I could say unique to Judaism, but Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. So here we are standing grafted in, you know. This is great, because this is, this is God laying down the gavel. Let's, you want to test? Let's test. Let's do this prophecy thing. So God knows the future, and this... By the way, utterly... I, I doubt that he did prophecy in a very uh, systematic way, understanding prophecy. Prophecy is just statements from God about what God currently plans to do in the immediate context, in the immediate situation. And naturally, prophecy is meant to be averted. The, pro the purpose of the prophecy is to get the people to change and do other than what the people are doing, such that the prophecy doesn't come, come about.
And that, that's the normal use and function of prophecy, is subverting the future, is that not happening. The prophecy is meant to not be fulfilled. It completely refutes the idea of open theism, doesn't it? That God doesn't know what's going to happen next. No, no, it doesn't. You get, you're, you're, you're misreading your verses. He knows. He knows all my days. He knows <laughs> the things that are going to come next. He, in fact, challenged. So this is what happens. They, they have this superficial reading of the Bible, and they just assume that all their texts, they, they've, they've never gone out. He's doing a sermon on open theism. He's never gone out and read an open theist work on these proof texts of his. Open theists have answered this. They've answered it in basically any one of their works because these are common objections. And he has readily ha has access to all this information, but uh, he's a superficial thinker. And uh, so he just grabs his proof texts and he, he gets this idea in his head of what open theism is. And so he fights a straw man that he built up in his own head without actually looking at the literature. He didn't do a genuine study of the issue. Challenges others. This is the, he's the only one that knows it. So open theism or the idea that you have a God that's limited. Now what they do with this open theism thing is they think they're getting God off the hook for all the bad stuff that happens in the world. Right? Like, why is it that, that that person got a disease or that person died or that person got murdered? And it's like, well, God didn't know. Okay, well, that. Uh, uh, did, did anyone ever say that in, anywhere? Um, yeah, so pull up a source and please quote someone. That's, that's not biblical. That's the number one issue here, is that's just not biblical. Um, I do have a whole uh, video on YouTube. You guys are welcome to watch it on the problem of evil. Um, I didn't teach it here Sunday night. I taught it uh, Sunday morning for the youth. And then, but I did put it online, so it's available there if you're interested. If this is a problem that's plaguing your heart, just just Google my name and the phrase problem of evil. Or um, if God is good, why evil? Um, so there is that. But, but yeah, open theism is not where we need to go or can go if we're going to affirm what Scripture says. So number four, number four, God knows the what ifs. This is an interesting idea of God's knowledge. God knows what if. Uh, that's funny because in your system there is no what if there is there's god knows what the future will be no matter what and so the what ifs are not actual what ifs it's like god knowing nothings like like you have a computer that is programmed to precisely do everything that it will do and then you're saying well i know what if this other contingency happened that's not a thing to know because that's not a thing that's in the realm of possibilities we do have a God knowing the entire future and uh, knowing how it will turn out, everything's faded and there is no what ifs. So any what ifs in the Bible that we come across is open theism. It's literally open theism. And what they do is they, they, they need to deal with them. So they turn it into this like cute little talking point. Like, oh, God knows even the what ifs. There's no what ifs in your belief. This is incompatible with the system that you've set up in this fatalism where everything that ever will happen is eternally known by God. There is no what ifs. This is a really interesting concept. So let's let's read. Well, first off, you know what a what if, right, is, right? Like, like if Randy stands up and screams right now, how will Mike respond? Well, God knows. I don't actually know how to respond. I hope you don't do that. But <laughs> his wife's like, don't, please don't. So note, note that. So yeah, all human beings are just input-output creatures in his view. That uh, if you take a, a collection of stimuli and you input them into a creature, you could precisely predict the output that comes out of the creature. And so he, that, that he's admitting to believing in fate that human beings are just input-output creatures. That if you put precise stimuli into this complex machine known as man, you could precisely predict their response behavior. And so, uh, yeah, fatalism in that system, it makes sense that uh, fatalism is true, that uh, God just controlled all the inputs from time eternal, and the fatalistic creature known as man uh, received the right inputs that God eternally foreknown to output the exact outputs that God eternally foreknew. And he's admitting to it. He's admitting to it without realizing he's admitting to fatalism. Man is just a machine. Man is just an input-output robot. Uh, but, but God knows what I would do under any set of circumstances. He knows what you would do under any set of, of see input output of circumstances. He knows that if, if this creature dies right here today, how that will check, uh, change the fertility of the soil for plants growing later on, which will affect when someone's walking through the field sometime a hundred years later, like the Lord knows every detail and every ramification of things. Okay, so let's let's get get to your proof text, dude. So this is uh, supported in scripture. Matthew eleven twenty one. 
Jesus speaking in Matthew eleven twenty one says, Woe to you, Chorazin. <laughs> okay, so Jesus was Jesus omniscient because Jesus admitted to not knowing when the end times would be, when uh, the Father's return will be. So not, not even the Son knows that. And so they do this thing where they'll quote these uh, ideas uh, from uh, Jesus, Jesus talking, and they'll say, see, omniscience in Jesus. But Jesus wasn't omniscient. And so that undermines, that, that tells you actually that a non-omniscient uh, person, Jesus, can know these things. It undermines omniscience rather than reinforces it. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Again, look at, look at how they're treating the Bible. They treat the Bible as it's not a document that's recording normal human conversation with other human beings. Jesus, Jesus is insulting these people. Jesus is saying, you are worse than uh, Tyre and Sidon. You, you are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, he says. You are, you are so bad. And uh, it's an insult. And it's not, it's not like you don't have to take that like seriously. And like, uh, like it's it's a metaphysical certainty that these inputs would have uh, resulted in those outputs. It's an insult. Oh, it's funny. And so he takes an insult, uh, a jab at these people, calling them worse than these other villages. That's what it's actually doing. It's idiomatic speech saying you are worse than these really awful people. And uh, it, that that's the point Jesus is trying to get across. And so he takes that and he says, oh, what this is, is it's metaphysics. Jesus knows the input outputs of uh, Tyre, uh, Sidon. Uh, he knows the input outputs of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows all these input outputs, and he can predict, based on these metaphysical inputs and outputs, the reactions. It's not what's going on in the text, my friend. Let me re repeat the important part. For if, if, the what if, the mighty works would... Yeah, the pretend I'm doing this, and Jesus says, uh, I am the door. And so I get up there and say, Jesus is the door. Uh, he says he's the door. Uh, he's made out of wood, and we could open Jesus, and we could walk through Jesus, and then we could close it, and then there's a lock in the door because Jesus says he's a door. I'll read it again. Jesus says, "I am the door." You know, this this is this is the level of analysis this guy's giving to these uh, proof texts of his. The what if the mighty works which were done in you, as Jesus performed miracles, did things in those cities, if they had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So if Jesus had, had come earlier to a different group of cities, that, that city would have repented. Boy, that's interesting, isn't it? You might be like, well, why didn't he come? Well, if he, he had to pick a time to come. <laughs> he, if he came then, he might be saying to Tyre and Sidon, hey, if I'd come at this other time, this other thing would have happened. But the, the Lord knows the what ifs, all of the what ifs. Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 3, verses 4 through 6, another one of these... Um, what if things? It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, Go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you were not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech or of hard language, but to the house of Israel. So he's not going to Gentiles, he's going to Israel. But then, then this is interesting. Look at what he says. Um, not, verse 6, Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. <laughs> Again, this, this is insulting language. This is saying you guys are so stubborn that you are worse than these other people. And uh, is it hyperbolic? Is, is, is this supposed to be like uh, this? Literally, these inputs would have resulted in these outputs. And, and even if it was that, even if it was that, uh, how predictable is that? You could produce aggregate actions of individuals on, on a mass scale. And we see that in prediction markets all the time. It's, it's not hard to do, but this, this, this phrase here, even if it, uh, let's pretend it is a mass movement. I don't know. It doesn't sound like it to me. It sounds like a, a, an insult and uh, a very effective insult against some people saying you are worse than Gentiles. You're, you are supposed to be God's people and you're worse than Gentiles is what's going on there. That's interesting, isn't it? If Ezekiel, the same prophet, had been sent to... And again, this is not, nothing he's presenting right now is talking about omniscience, God knowing all things. Uh, he's, he's talking about God knowing counterfactuals, which a lot of open theists don't disagree that God knows counterfactuals, like uh, Boyd. Boyd's a neo-Molinist, that God knows all possible 
futures at, and at all different combinations of futures, at least in that allows for like maybe free will because God knows that uh, if I say yes or no to a question without knowing which one I'll actually say to the question, at least Boyd's, Boyd's understanding of neo-Molinism is consistent with actual free will. Whereas uh, this guy thinks that humans are input-output robots. You just input the right things, and then you can predict with uh, precise precision those outputs, which I don't think it works like that. You could produce movements in mass, but at an individual level, it gets very tricky. To a different group of people, they, they would have listened to him. He was sent to Israel, and here they are, largely not listening. That's really interesting. So God knows the what-ifs and seems to be making choices about how he'll handle reality and he factors in all of these what-ifs. Yeah, I, I don't think he's treating the Bible like a historical document of conversations with different individuals, with uh, polemical and uh, metaphorical and idiomatic language. He's treating it as a car manual that you just open and you just assume your meaning onto the text. That's what he does a lot. And it's, again, again, uh, the, his proof texts don't prove what he's trying to prove. He's trying to prove God knows all counterfactuals ever, and he points to God knowing maybe one counterfactual. It doesn't prove what you're trying to prove, dude. It doesn't do it. It doesn't say God knows in all situations what everyone will do given the correct inputs. He's going from a very specific case to a generalization. And you would think, because of the focus on omniscience and all these people, uh, the Matt Chandlers of the world, the what is it, the Mike Wingers of the world, the, all these, all these uh, guys, the Spurgeons of the world, they they care about it a lot. They have entire sermons on omniscience. The Bible doesn't have any of that. And if the Bible authors actually believed in this type of omniscience, and uh, you would expect something, you would expect them to say, "Oh, God knows all counterfactuals somewhere," but no. That's just a topic that these guys care about that the Bible doesn't actually care about or advocate. And they are desperate for proof text, so they have to go grab specific examples of possible counterfactuals known by God and just apply it generally. You can't go from details to generalizations like that. That's not how these things work. Um, these are, these are, um, uh, these are kind of important. And actually right now, amongst in, in the world of theology, in the world so how that works, though, is if someone makes an overarching claim that uh, covers everything, God knows all things, that could be disproved by God not knowing one thing, right? That's how that works. So uh, a universal can be disproved by positive evidence of one, one counterpoint. And, uh, but you can't make a universal claim off of uh, the, the data of just one data point. You can't go from details to generalities. You can't say, oh, because my car is red. I don't have a red car. My car is red, and so all cars are red. That's invalid. But you can go from someone saying all cars are red to me saying uh, my car is gray over here, so so not all cars are red. And then that uh, the details, the the specific counter example, disproves the generalization. And let's pretend we live in a Model T world where Ford, when he made the Model T, all all his cars were black. And so someone might claim, oh, all cars are black. And some, some other guy, he might have grabbed some red paint and he painted his Model T red or something like that. And he might have a counterexample and say, hey, but I got a red car. Another guy might say, this was a generalization. Yeah, pretty much all cars are black. And so it's not incorrect of me to say all cars are black, even though you might have a specific counterexample. So generalizations can work in the face of counterexamples, whereas uh, metaphysical absolutes, all-encompassing statements do not work. It shuts it down. And he doesn't deal with this uh, counter evidence against his position, does he? I mean, I, we're only like 20 minutes in. And I guess that's pretty painful because this podcast is like over an hour so far or something like that. Oh, I don't know if we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it if he, if he actually addresses this. Well, I'll listen to it. We'll see if he addresses counterpoints against his arguments. But he seems very unfamiliar with the literature. He seems to do a lot of his assumptions about his proof texts. Well, let's hear what he says. World of, of people who are studying these sorts of things. This is actually, believe it or not, a really pivotal issue. And there's a fancy word for it. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach you guys the, the fancy philosophical term for God knowing the what ifs. It's called middle knowledge. Middle knowledge. Um, this is, I don't know that middle knowledge is probably the easiest thing to remember. It's why it's correlated with the idea of what ifs. I could get into that some other time. But it's an interesting concept. It's the idea that God knows if he had created the world slightly differently. 
exactly how things would have gone. Let's suppose that Winston Churchill was never born. Let's suppose that, um, that Thomas Edison had never existed. Let's suppose that Martin Luther died in, in, in the thunderstorm he was caught in when he was, before he really became converted. God knows all those what ifs. He knows exactly what would happen and he's chosen to allow things to happen or, and some, in many cases cause specifically things to happen. And notice that this is the fatalistic view, that human creatures are input-output robots. All you have to do to get a specific output is put specific inputs into that human, and then they'll just act according to those inputs. It's a fatalistic view. And uh, the Molnas say, no, look, there, there are options. There are different things that could happen in different circumstances. You don't get, you don't get past fatalism. Fatalism is uh, the idea that we don't have free will to choose different options. You think that our choices are just just the summation of the inputs that we've ex experienced up to that time. And Molinism, we've talked about Molinism in uh, f quite a few podcasts. We've, we've talked about how it's an irrational view to hold. It doesn't get you past the problem of fatalism. And if you're incorporating an in, un, eternal, ungenerated knowledge in God, that means necessarily that all events don't have counterfactuals. All events are necessary events. There is no way that uh, there's possibilities or probabilities in events where they can have a counterfactual become true. It's just, just not possible in that world in which God eternally knows the truth value of all propositions. All propositions have an eternal truth value. Can't be any different. Can't be any different. But uh, uh, they they do this uh, shifting cards thing. They do this sleight of hand where they say, "Oh, look at there. There's these situations that we, you know, we're human beings, and we understand that if someone wiggles their hand, that that wiggling might have been in a different way, and then they'll just attribute that to their system and say, "See, there there, there could be counterfactuals because we can visualize them in our head without addressing the internal the internal functioning of their system. How they're fish." their system disallows counterfactuals from ever coming true, ever being a possibility. It's not a possibility. 100% things will happen that God foreknows. Those things are fated, destined, necessary events, no possibility of not happening, just in the system they set up. But we're going to have to break off there. I'll listen to the rest of this guy and see if... Uh, we want to do a part two. There's a lot of part twos I need to do about a lot of people, but uh, uh, it's fun. It takes a lot of time, but uh, Mike Winger, Mike Winger, he's the charismatic guy. I understand why people are listening to him. He's easy to listen to. He seems like a nice guy, but he doesn't seem to have the depth. He, he, he doesn't critically anal analyze his uh, proof text. He doesn't do it. All right. Thank you for listening. Start a uh, comment in the in YouTube section or, or start a thread on Facebook and uh, we'll talk. It'll be good.